Well, Bull Street, it's a, a privilege to be with you here this morning. I bring greetings on behalf of uh, all of our workers all around the world, our staff. I was texting a, a number of them this morning, letting them know I'd be here. And uh, some of you may even know uh, the building I was in as we shot that video. That's Mount Vernon Baptist Church, just north of Atlanta, uh, where one of our board members, Aaron Menikoff, is the senior pastor. So greetings from them as well. One of my favorite historical missionaries is John Payton. He was born in 1824 in Dunfree, Scotland, and his autobiography continues to inspire Christians today. And its harrowing accounts of his time on the New Hebrides Islands was this series of islands uh, in the southeast of Papua New Guinea. And Peyton grew up in a home where he had heard his zealous uh, father pray missionary petitions during times of family worship there. He said his his dad poured out his whole soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus. And we all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior. As a young boy, Peyton would listen to the prayers of his father at home, and he wondered if he himself had a part to play in the answering of them. Missionary seeds were planted during simple times of family worship in the Peyton home. It was during Peyton's daily time in the scriptures and prayer where the Holy Spirit would finally cultivate in him a heart prepared for the sacrifice to give up local ministry success, leave a loving family, and risk his life to take the gospel to the New Hebrides. The Reformed Presbyterian Church of Scotland had been advertising for a missionary to travel to the islands in the South Pacific, and Peyton resounded to answer that call. And when he told one of his mentors, Dr. Bates, about his desire, he recalled that Dr. Bates rejoiced and even wept for joy with him. Not everybody would respond with the same enthusiasm. After his conversion, Peyton had worked as an evangelist in the hard streets of Glasgow, Scotland. And when he had communicated his call to the foreign mission fields, there were well-meaning individuals who sought to convince him to stay in Glasgow. By predicting that the new Christians that he had been discipling in Glasgow would go astray if he left and went somewhere else. When he told his mom and dad about his desire, Peyton's parents replied that they had long since given him away to the Lord. And in this manner also would leave him to God's disposal. At the age of 34, Peyton embarked with his new wife, Mary Ann, for the New Hebrides. And this was the year of 1858. His wife would die within four months of their arrival. And just three weeks after their own newborn son had died at birth. Peyton suffered hardship and sickness and he suffered attempts on his life. He persevered. And 40 years later, he would see churches planted. He'd see the Bible translated. He'd see missionaries on 25 of the 30 inhabitable islands in the New Hebrides. People who did not have the gospel heard the gospel and believed in the gospel because someone was sent to preach them the gospel. Our text this morning is Romans chapter 10 verses 9 to 15. If you could turn with me there, that would be great. It's a lot better when you're reading God's words with your very eyes. Romans 10 verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For the, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is the word of the Lord. I think the main point of this passage is that the gospel is good news for the whole world. And so we must believe the gospel and proclaim it and send out others to share it around the world. I'll have two points this morning. Point number one, the gospel is good news. The gospel is good news. Point number two, it's in the form of a question. What will you do with the gospel? Friends, what will you do with the gospel? Point number one, the gospel is good news. Our passage today is found two-thirds of the way into a letter that Paul had written to the church in Rome. Paul was hoping to visit the Romans on his way to Spain, and he hoped to be helped along his way after spending some time with them. Think about that as he was coming, he was hoping to have a time of mutual encouragement with them. They would have most likely given him some funding. Historians believe he was intending to even pick up a translator to help him with Latin in Spain. He's probably going to eat some good food. In Romans 15, 24, Paul wrote, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. See, Paul has fulfilled the ministry that the Lord had given him from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. And now it's his ambition to preach the gospel in a place where it had not yet been preached. He alludes to the unity in the church that the churches in Macedonia and Achaia have as they've been working together to contribute to the needs of the church in Jerusalem. Gentile churches working together to fund the needs of those who were not like them. I've been so encouraged by stories from this very week of this congregation and how it has been sharing its resources abroad and even here at home, even amongst maybe congregations and ministries that aren't housed within these walls. Praise God for that. So Paul's on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to deliver the aid. And once that delivery is made, he's going to reroute through Spain with a stopover for some resourcing and refreshment in Rome. So our context is that this is a missionary support letter of sorts. I think it's the greatest one that's ever been read. Rather than jumping to the ask, which so often ha happens in missionary support conversations, Paul brilliantly reminds them of the beauty of the gospel. He's reminding them of the gift of the gospel before he asks them to give out of their thanksgiving for the advance of the gospel to a place where it had not been preached. So 
This morning, my intention is to walk through, in our first point, the beauty of the gospel through the book of Romans. And my prayer is that your heart will rejoice within you as you consider how good the gospel is. Starting in Romans 1, Paul opens the letter by expressing his desire to see the Christians in Rome. He wants to fellowship with them and to impart some spiritual gift to them. Even though he's ultimately bound for Spain, he lets them know he's excited to spend some time amongst them and preach amongst them. He hopes to strengthen the church in Rome before he embarks for Spain. Paul writes, he's preached the gospel to the Jews and the Gentiles. He's under obligation to the Greeks, the city folk, and to the barbarians. Romans would read that and think about those on the far, far edges of the empire. The tall giant men that were super hairy that would fight up against their soldiers. Those places that their kids shuddered about in their nighttime bed stories. Those were the barbarians. He was under obligation to those that lived in the frontier areas and in the known world. And he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. Friends, God's wrath is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. God has shown that he can be known throughout creation. We talked a little bit about this last night. Creation boasts of its creator, and yet man has suppressed the truth. God gave up men to their passions, and they descended further and further into their sin, exchanging the glory of God and the truth about God for lies and worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Sinful human beings around the world have been given to unrighteousness and evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossipers, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. I see some children in the room. Listen to this one. Disobedient to parents. Ooh. Foolish and faithless and heartless and ruthless. Maybe some of those words res are resound as you are reminded of who you were apart from Christ one day. But Paul writes, don't judge them, reader. Romans 2, because in passing judgment on their sin, you show your knowledge of the very standard that you yourself fail to live by. See, to be righteous by the law, you would have had to keep every single dot and iota of the law. But in breaking the law, you show that your works have no weight at all. No weight at all. You're condemned. Jewish reader, your circumcision means nothing when you've broken the law. True relationship with God is a matter of the heart and not the flesh. Romans 3, so what advantage is the law? Well, Paul writes, through God's law, God revealed his nature. There's an advantage. Through God's law, one is made aware of the realities of their sin. There's another advantage. There's no one righteous, not Jew, not Gentile. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Justification to be declared righteous is not an outward action. Justification is a matter of the heart. Romans 4, well, what about Abraham? Well, if he was justified by his works, he'd have something to boast about, wouldn't he? But Abraham wasn't justified by his works. He was justified by his faith. Abraham was counted righteous before his circumcision. He was justified by his faith and not by his works, including his circumcision. He believed God's promise that he would be the father of many nations. It wasn't through the law that the nations would ultimately be blessed. It was by righteousness through faith. Simply, Abraham believed what God promised. Just as Abraham's faith and the promise of God was counted to him as righteousness, so will our trust in the power of God lead to our salvation. Our trust in the promise of God for our salvation. The God who raised Jesus from the dead after he paid the penalty for our sins, for our transgressions. The God who raised Jesus from the dead for our justification. What does that mean? Jesus was raised for our justification. Have you ever thought about that? It's an odd term. Jesus was raised for our justification. We often talk about Jesus' work on the cross as saving us from our sins, and yet we've got this legal declaration that the resurrection brought our justification. He was raised for our justification. So rather than me trying to explain this to you theologically, we're going to go back a few hundred years and call on our friend Jonathan Edwards, who said it way better than what I could. He writes this, so if Christ were not risen, it would be evidence that God was not yet satisfied for our sins. Now the resurrection is God declaring his satisfaction. He thereby declared that it was enough. Christ was thereby released from his work. Christ, as he was mediator, is thereby justified. Friends, let me be very, very clear with you. Jesus was declared righteous because of his own righteousness. Our justification is different. Jesus earned his own justification. We did not earn ours. Jesus earned our justification for us. Romans 5. We have been declared righteous, justified through Jesus Christ. Christian, we stand righteous before a holy God because of Jesus. We were enemies of God because of our sin and now because of Jesus. If you put your faith in him, we have peace with God and we can rejoice in our hope and the glory of God. But we don't just rejoice in our hope and the glory of God, we also rejoice in our sufferings. Wow, how? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope, which does not put us to shame. How do we do all of this? We can't. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
Friends, as we think through the gifts of the gospel this morning, Paul is writing about another one right here. We have the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters of Bull Street, Jesus died for the ungodly. It's hard enough thinking of laying down your life for a righteous person and being in a room full of so many personnel. Many of you have reckoned with that very equation. That's a hard enough sacrifice. It's hard to think about laying yourselves down for others, even a good person. But get a load of this. God loved us so much that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And it wasn't that we were just sinners. We were sinners against him. He was the one who was aggrieved by our sins. And yet he died for us. Death came into the world through Adam on one side, and now life came through Jesus Christ. Sin reigned in death. Grace reigns through righteousness that leads to eternal life. Romans 6. Given the power of grace to rule over death and sin, do we continue to sin so that grace may abound? There's this great story that my friend, his name's Tim Watley, he planted a church amongst an unreached language group. It took him 15 years to learn the culture and the language in order to communicate it. People come to Christ, they start teaching them through scripture. And they're going through the book of Romans. And he tells this story where they finished one night in the end of Romans 5. And about two o'clock in the morning, Tim realized he made a mistake because there was a bunch of urgent pounding on the door. And he wearily went to the door and opened it and it was a number of the tribesmen, elders, and they were super, super concerned. They weren't church elders yet, they were tribesmen elders and they were super concerned. And they were concerned because of the truth of Romans 5. Grace is so good, how do we keep the people from sinning? If grace is so powerful and our sin brings about grace, how do, we, how do we keep people from going around and sinning so that grace can abound? And Tim thought to himself, well, the next time I teach Romans 5, I better teach Romans 6, because that's what Paul was anticipating the readers to be asking as he unlaid this doctrine. So do we continue to sin so that grace abounds even more? No. Jesus was raised and walked from his grave. We have been raised from our sin, and as Christians, we now walk in righteousness. We are dead to sin. You can't be 99% dead. You're 100% dead to sin. And you are alive together with Christ. And as Christians, we now walk in righteousness. We're no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves to righteousness. So Christian, don't let sin reign in your life. You fight it. You live your life as somebody who has been brought from death to life. You once lived in impurity and unrighteousness. Your sins led to more sins. And now freed from your sin and justified. Your righteousness leads to justification, leads to sanctification, and your sanctification leads to eternal life. 
which is a free gift offered to you through Jesus Christ. Man, grace is so good. Romans 7. So is the law bad? No, Paul writes. It's useful in showing the fruit of unrighteousness. The law isn't the problem. Our sinful flesh is the problem. We're still tempted to daily wage war against our flesh. We are so wretched in our sinful flesh. Who can save us from this body of death? Romans 8, Jesus. Jesus can save us. He fulfills the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. And so as Christians, the spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in us. That's Holy Spirit power. Not only that, but we are sons of God and heirs with Christ. Friends, we were enemies of God and Jesus died for us. We were caught in our trespasses and he saved us. We have been declared righteous. We have read about sanctification. We've already touched on eternal life, but we are also called sons of God and heirs of the promise? This is way better than any, any gifts that any humans could offer. But friends, suffering will come. After all, Jesus suffered. But our sufferings are not comparable to the glory that awaits us. So the Holy Spirit will help us in our weakness. Christian, be assured, all things will work together for our good through God. For those whom God foreknew, those whom he chose, saying mine before the foundation of the world was laid, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We read in Joshua 15 this morning, I I love the sister as she read it, she was emphasizing, I have done this, I have done this, I have done this. You want a picture of God's glorious grace in your salvation? You look at the glory of grace in Old Testament. Israel was helpless. They couldn't even walk straight for a few days before falling back into rejection. And look at the faithfulness of God all throughout the pages of the Old Testament. That is our God. All of the suffering in these mortal bodies, all of our fighting in our sinful flesh, One day, Christian, gone. No more. If God is for us, who can stand against us? Nothing. Christian, I don't know where you are today. I don't know how discouraged you are. I don't know how lonely you are. I don't know how tired you are as you fight sinful flesh. I don't know what circumstances that you find yourself in right now. But listen, nothing can separate you from God's love. Not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, not nakedness, not sword, not death, not angels, nor demons, nor rulers. And then Paul, as if he hasn't described anything, he just wants to make it abundantly clear, nothing in all creation can separate you from God's love. Power. Romans 9, Paul now pivots to his heart for Israel. Again, we read about it this morning. They had adoption, the glory of God, 
of, of the glory of being the chosen people, the law and the worship and the promises. They were the people of Christ. But not all of Israel was saved. God chooses whomever he desires. Again, we see the lawyer Paul imagining the response of the reader and he says this, does God not have that right? But it is only the people of Israel that were to be heirs of the promise. Some Gentiles have been chosen too. And this had been promised in the Old Testament. It had always been promised. Hosea prophesied that those who were not my people, I will call my people. Isaiah prophesied this too. He said, many prophets foretold that this was coming. Many, many. Isaiah, Hosea. You can go through so many of the minor and major prophets and see time and time again there's this hint of a promise for the nations. Gentiles who didn't have the law, have attained righteousness by faith. And yet the people of Israel who were given the law did not succeed in attaining the righteousness. And so they were consumed by their own works. You read the Gospels and you see these legal experts of Jewish law and they were so obsessed with the law that they made up their own laws. They were so obsessed with these laws that the very Messiah that they had been waiting for literally walks in front of them. And they see him as an adversary. The one who gave them the law that they're trying to hold is in front of them and they make him their enemy. And then they kill him. The whole Old Testament was pointing to and at times loudly shouting about the promised Messiah, the suffering servant, the root of Jesse, the son of David. Christ would be the end of the law for righteousness. Hear this, Christian, for everyone who believes. Righteousness is available not by works, but by believing. By faith. If you're going to live by the law, you're going to have to live by it perfectly. Righteousness is so close. And then Paul leads us into our passage this morning. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Christian, think about all the law. How impossible it is to meet every dot and iota of the law. And the glorious gospel says this, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. That's it. The true and better Adam. All of history had led to this point. The choosing of Israel, the giving of the law, the sacrificial law, the ceremonial law, the dietary law, all of the law was given as an arrow pointing towards the only person capable of crushing the serpent, one who would perfectly fulfill the law. He is the true and better Adam. He is the true and better Moses. He is the true and better David. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the suffering servant. He is the conquering hero. 
He is the Son of God. And God loved us so much that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The Son of God lived a perfect life and died to pay a perfect sacrifice and completely, completely satisfy the wrath of God so that we could be saved from our sins. So confess him as Lord with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Look again at chapter 10, verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If we aren't careful, our sinful flesh, always, always, always looking to take the credit that it doesn't deserve, will say something like, aha, I believed. There it is. I put my faith in Christ. Friends, with all due respect, dead people can't bring themselves back to life. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And Paul wrote to the Ephesians, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He's the actor. My phone is about to die. I was thinking about this illustration as thinking about how, what do I do if my phone dies? I didn't even think about plugging it in this morning. That would have been a smart thing to do. But you know what? The th my phone could be dead right now. My phone cannot charge itself. It needs an outside operator to come and plug it in and bring it back to life. A dead person in an ER room cannot grab the paddles and shock their heart and bring themselves back to life. Christian, your very faith was given to you as a gift because you were dead in your trespasses and God placed his affections on you and breathed life into your heart and you believed and put your faith in him. Don't take credit for things that God has done. So your heart was transplanted with a new heart. You believed in your heart and you were justified and declared righteous. And your formerly lying and stammering tongue confessed Jesus as Lord, and you were saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What good news. That's the meaning of gospel, the good news. It's the best news ever. That brings me to my second point. Friends, now that we've gloried in this gospel together, A little bit of a sidestep here. If you don't believe what I've just said, would you trust Jesus? Would you put your faith in him? Would you confess him as Lord? Maybe you were here to watch your friend be baptized this morning and 
he's shared the gospel with you before and here you are hearing it again. All it takes is believing and confessing. You can do that right now. Christians, what will we do with the gospel? What will we do with the gospel? Maybe, as you've listened this morning, you can resonate with the futility of a works-based righteousness. You're at the end of your rope. You realize you can't save yourself. And you're tired, and you're weary, and you're worn, and you've chased after the world, and you've found out all it is is over-promises and under-deliveries. You've chased after your own righteousness, but your conscience condemns you because you try, try, and try, and you know that you just keep failing. Jesus came and perfectly fulfilled the law, every bit of it. He lived a sinless life and died on a cross to bear God's wrath as a sacrifice for the sins of those who had put their trust in him. So trust in him and save you. Next piece of Paul's argument. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Some of you have heard the gospel at one time or another, and perhaps you've grown up in this very church with this family. Maybe you've heard the gospel many times, but if you're honest with yourself, you're trying to reach a certain level of righteous behavior because you think that that's what God requires of you before he'll accept you. Oh, if I only make it to church every Sunday morning, then I'm ready. If if I do all the right things and forsake all the wrong things, then I'm ready. If my actions are more moral or I think of myself and get to a better standard of the general population of those around me, then I'm ready. If only my life looks like something God will be pleased to adopt me. Sister, I'm so encouraged by adoption ministries. So thankful for your work in the gospel. Adoption is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. You so beautifully told stories this morning of little kids being brought into families and adopted. And the beauty of adoption is this. Those little children have no means to make themselves acceptable to the family that adopts them. A family reaches out to an adoption center and says, I want to adopt a child. And that, through a legal transaction, that child is brought into that family and that mom and dad say, mine. They're mine. Because of the love of the parent for that child. Adoption is so wonderful. Friend, if you're trying to just get to that standard where you think you're good enough for God to adopt you into his family, you do not understand adoption. You will never, ever, ever meet the standard of the righteous requirement of the law. That's the bad news. The good news is that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will not only be saved from the penalty of your sin, you will be counted righteous with God. When Jesus was raised from the dead, God was declaring his satisfaction in his son. He was saying, the debt's been paid. And a voice 
The same voice that declared, this is my son of whom I'm well pleased as Jesus was baptized. That same voice as Jesus was being raised from the dead was saying, this is my son and of his sacrifice, I am well pleased. Perfect, spotless righteousness is available if you put your faith and trust in Jesus. Would you believe in him? How are they to believe in him and whom they've not heard? So we've already reflected on this fact this morning that the people of Israel had heard. They were given the law. They were given priests. They were given prophets. They didn't have an excuse. If you're sitting here today, you've heard the gospel. If someone brought you here today and you had never heard the gospel until today, guess what? You've heard it. Now you've got to do something with it. What are you going to do with it? Paul so wisely moves on to consider, what about those who have never heard the gospel? So some statistics estimate that there are over 3 billion people who currently don't have access to the gospel. They don't have a Christian in their life, not one. There isn't a church in their neighborhood. Most of them don't have a bi the Bible in their language. Think about the glories of grace that I just talked about. Think about the songs that we've just sung this morning. Carl Henry wrote, it's good news, the gospel, only if it gets there on time. The old covenant with Israel was replaced with a new covenant when Jesus died and rose from the grave. This new covenant, one in which there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, offers salvation to anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ. But how would one call on Jesus and believe in him in whom they've never heard? In Acts chapter 1-8, Jesus commands the apostles and to this day the church to take the gospel out there to the furthest reaches of the world. It is good news to salvation to all who would believe, but how do they believe if they don't hear? People have often said to me, well, if they don't hear, surely God will take mercy on them. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. Romans 1, every human being has sufficient knowledge of God. They're without excuse. And if that was true, I love what David Platt says, the worst thing we could do, if God was just going to give them a get out of hell free card, the worst thing we could do was bring people the gospel. We have to get them the gospel. And how are they to hear without someone preaching, Paul writes. Someone isn't going to believe the gospel and hear the gospel unless someone tells them the gospel. It's simple. The good news must be told. It must be proclaimed. I was encouraged again this morning as I heard ministry after ministry sharing the gospel focus of its incarnational ministries that are out there. Not one ministry was saying, well, we don't really get around to the gospel. 
They're all gospel-infused. Unfortunately, that's rare in today's world. It's almost like we're embarrassed to tell the gospel because we don't want to get in the way and we'll, we'll just wait a little bit longer. We just want to keep being Jesus and then we'll finally get to the gospel. Get to the gospel. Get to the gospel. Paul doesn't say, show them the gospel. He says, preach to them the gospel. It's good to do good things. But if it is not accompanied with the gospel, we're only replacing what the United Nations does. They have a lot of money. Let them do the things apart from the gospel, but we are gospel people. So as we go out and we dig wells and set up centers in our communities, and as we go and build houses for orphans, let's do it with the gospel because we're gospel people. True evangelism is to communicate the gospel. And friends, it's always with words. There are people in Indonesia, in India, in Vietnam, in Papua New Guinea, in Chad, and so many other places who don't have access to the gospel. Would you be willing to go? Would you be willing to suffer? Those 3,000 odd languages that don't have the gospel, one of the reasons they don't have the gospel is it's gonna be really, 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 really hard to get them the gospel. Some of them will try and kill you. Some of our missionaries may die because of sickness and illness. Some of the countries right now are pretty much impossible to get into. But we got to keep going. We got to keep trying. Would you consider doing that? Would you consider dedicating your life to preaching the gospel in one of those languages? Or perhaps the Lord's placing in your heart a work amongst a place where the Bible is translated, but there's a fledgling church calling out for help. Perhaps some of you would consider going to a place where missionaries have been in the past, but Churches or churches have been in the past, in the vast underchurch and under-resourced cities across Asia and Africa and Latin America and Europe. See, missions isn't just to the unreached and unengaged. That is a very essential part of missions. But friends, we just celebrated sufficiency of Scripture's work in Uganda. It's not just about getting one person saved and getting a Bible translated and moving on. We want to see healthy churches. We want to see healthy churches in which people want another with the gospel so that the watching world sees a compelling vision of the gospel and says, what is so different about you guys? Oh, let me tell you about Jesus. Would you consider maybe moving to a university area around the world and getting plugged in with a campus ministry connected to a vibrant local church? Paul writes... How are they to preach unless they are sent? Every Christian should share the gospel. It's not just for the pastors. It's not just for named ministries. Everybody should share the gospel. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.15 to always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within you. Paul reminded the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5 that they and us today are ambassadors for Christ. 
So there's this element in which every Christian is commissioned to tell the gospel. But there's also a sending that occurs when gospel ministers are sent out from congregations. Let's turn to Acts 13. I'm almost done. They gave me 40 minutes. It's so hard to preach this in 40 minutes. I'm trying my best. Acts 13, starting in verse 1. This verse may seem very close to home for you all here at Bull Street. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their, their hands on them and sent them off. This church had a man in this pulpit preaching on a regular basis when the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Calvin. And that's what you did. And then you sent him off. No, you didn't send away all of your pastors. Good decision. Pastorless churches are not a good idea. I cannot wait to tell the story of this church as I go around the U.S. and encourage churches to give up some of their best. Your example is astounding. That is gospel generosity. Before I even met a member of Bull Street, I could tell you love the gospel because you gave up your primary preacher to go and share that gospel on the other side of the planet. And I don't want to take away all of the good things that the Lord's going to say to this church on that day, but I think it's going to be something like, well done. You have made much of Jesus as you have sent out your pastor. Awesome. I'm convinced that the Great Commission was ultimately given to the church and specifically local churches. The normal pattern is for local churches to send out missionaries who share the gospel to people without access to the gospel and those people hear and believe and confess Jesus as Lord. Would you not just stop with Calvin though? Would you continue this work of raising up pastors and missionaries and sending them out? Parker Moore is a good friend. It's just another example of the generosity of this church. Especially in a time like this when you're looking for a pastor. I'm sure your search committee went, man, if only we hadn't sent Parker away a few years ago. Problem solved. Double generosity. God will provide. Perhaps some of you have the financial means to support missions work. And like Gaius in 3 John, you would do well to send others in a manner worthy of the Lord. What does that mean? It's not an accident that I picked this text for this week for your church. Because part of my task that I've been given is to encourage you to consider the next six weeks the offering that your church is bringing together for the gospel. 
So maybe, just maybe, this is just an idea. On that envelope that you're going to hand in, maybe this afternoon, just reflect on the beauty of the gospel. Write down three or four things that you love about the gospel. And as you're, as a family or as a single person, you're praying about your gift over the next few weeks, remind yourself, the gospel's so good. As the Lord continues to raise up missionaries from churches like Bull Street, the generosity of churches like Bull Street are going to be necessary in order to resource them significantly. So everybody share the gospel. Some of you consider going and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then once again, everybody, let's consider how to give generously to that work. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this dear congregation. I thank you for the very evident grace that is in this congregation, Lord. We pray for the Fowlers as they continue to get trained up to head to the Middle East, Lord, that you would uh, comfort them in hard times, Lord. And Lord, that you would encourage them by your Holy Spirit and through conversations with members of this church that they love so much. And Lord, we pray that you're not done here at Bull Street, Lord, that you would not only be faithful to this church to bring them another senior pastor, Lord, but that you would be faithful in this church to see them send out more missionaries in the years ahead for your glory and renown to make you known where you're not yet known. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.